Please listen on as we look now for a second time. Verses 9 and 10 of Romans. Uh, For the sake of continuity, as we find him mid-sentence, let me start in verse 5. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. There's two kinds of righteousness. There's the righteousness of the law. There's the righteousness of faith. And it's the righteousness of faith that Paul and I preach to you. Chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above or Who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, uh, confess uh, with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this text so rich to us. We, we rejoice in it, Lord. We ask you that now with another sermon, it might be open to us with greater fullness, even greater fullness than we've already experienced by the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask you for your ministry now, O Holy Spirit. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began to consider uh, this text last time, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, favorite verses of many. Uh, I said last time it was instrumental in my conversion. Some of you have since said uh, the same to me. Uh, I would note, yes, I'm preaching uh, two sermons on this text. Uh, If if Martin Lloyd-Jones preached his 12, I say, let me preach my two. (laughs) Uh, It was amazing to see how many uh, he got from these two verses. Although, on the other hand, it isn't because we realize this is the very, the very heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of the gospel offer. Let me be even more specific. The gospel, the word of faith that the apostles preached and that I preach and that I offer unto you, salvation in Jesus' name. Now, what do, what do I propose to do in this sermon? Something a little bit unusual. Let me uh, just tell you uh, what that is. And that is, uh, I, I hope to make a series of points about faith. This is my second sermon on saving faith. And in doing so, I want to offer to you uh, a a whole host of quotations uh, that I would call a box of treasures uh, that I've opened up and that I'm offering unto you uh, from the good old authors. Uh, Men like William Guthrie in The Christian's Great Interest, men like J. Gresham Machen in What is Faith, uh, Edward Fisher in The Marrow of Modern Divinity, John Calvin in, in The Institutes. Well, let me begin with this. Along with J. Gresham Machen, we are seeking to answer the question, what is faith? Or to put it a little more uh, specifically, what is saving faith? What is the kind of faith that saves us? What is the word of faith that Paul preached, verse 8, and that he describes in verses 9 and 10? Well, faith is not something, let us see, that is generic. It is something that is specific. This is how Machen puts it in what is faith. I think it's a very helpful way to open this sermon. He says, what is faith? A more practical question could hardly be conceived. The preacher says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But how can a man possibly act on that suggestion unless he knows what it is to believe? 
It was at that point that the doctrinal preaching of a former generation was far more practical than the practical preaching of the present day. A little later, he says, if the way of salvation is faith, it does seem to be highly important to tell people who want to be saved just what faith means. If the preacher cannot do that, he can hardly be a true evangelist. Well, that's what we're asking. We're asking what faith is. I can think of no better uh, definition than that which is given in the shorter catechism. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. What is faith? It's receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ for salvation. You see, I'm not resting upon myself. I'm not resting upon the law. That's what the Jew was doing. He was leaning upon it, you could say. He was resting upon it. He was building upon it. But here the Lord laid the stone of true righteousness, even that of Jesus Christ. And rather than resting on it, they stumbled on it. Well, the man who has faith is the man who says, I rest upon that rock. I build upon that rock. Not of that that of my own righteousness or that of the law, but that of Jesus Christ alone. I'm receiving. I'm resting Upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to me in the gospel. Or as Calvin puts it, remember salvation or faith rather is a heart thing. More than anything else, that's what it is. Calvin, as I read last time, he says, and, and, I, and I think his chapter on faith is the best, best exposition of faith that has ever been written. He says, by contrast, the Christian faith, which alone deserves the name faith, is not content with the mere knowledge of a story. You see, it's not just a head thing. He says it settles deep within the human heart, cleansing it of pretense, make believe in hypocrisy, and so gripping it that it does not lightly fade away. True saving faith in Jesus Christ is something that settles deep within the heart. That's what I mean when I say it's a heart thing. But having said that, let me begin to make a series of points. The first of which is this. The first, well, I suppose I've given you a few treasures from the box of treasures, but here's where I really begin. And that's with William Guthrie's The Christian's Great Interest. It was, uh, just to commend the book, it was a book that John Owen loved so much. Uh, they used to make these little pocket books. They still do. He carried it in his pocket, <laughs> this book. In fact, I, I believe we have a copy of this as a, as a pocket book uh, in, the, in the church library. The Christian's great interest, one of the great points that he makes very early on is that it is a mistake that some make to make faith a difficult thing. Believing is not a difficult thing, it's an easy thing. And yet far too many make it a difficult thing. And so they fail to see their true saving interest in Jesus Christ. That's the Christian's great interest. This is what he says. Some conceive faith to be difficult, mysterious, hardly attainable. To these I say, do not mistake. Faith is not so difficult as many apprehend it to be. I say he hath made the way of heaven most easy. And faith, which is the condition required on our part, more easy than men do imagine. For the better understanding of this, consider that justifying faith is not to believe that I am elected or to believe that God loves me or that Christ died for me or the like. These things are indeed very difficult and almost impossible to be obtained at the first by those who are serious. I say true justifying faith is not any of the aforesaid things. 
But true justifying faith, which we now seek after as a good mark of an interest in Christ, is chiefly and principally an act or work of the heart. For as Paul says, with the heart, a man believes unto righteousness. Romans 10, 10. And he goes on to say this. Now I say this acting of the heart on Christ Jesus is not so difficult a thing as is conceived. Shall that judged shall that be judged a mysterious, difficult thing which doth consist much in desire. If men but have an appetite, they have it for they are blessed that hunger after righteousness. If you will you are welcome, Revelation twenty two seventeen. It is a matter of such intricacy and insuperable, or is it a matter of such insuperable difficulty? Earnestly to look to that exalted Savior. Look unto me and ye be saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45. And to receive a thing that is offered, held forth and declared to be mine, if I will but accept and take it. Well, I could keep going, but I need to go on. Is, is the thing really so difficult, he's saying? When God merely holds it forth unto us and says, look unto him and be saved. Receive of him and be saved. Seek and you will find it. No, faith is not so difficult a thing, saving faith, as men, as many men imagine. Indeed, it is an easy thing to believe. Let a man, Guthrie is saying, as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, let a man merely have a heart, a desire to be saved, and he will have it. The way of salvation set forth in the New Testament is so simple that a child can grasp it. It does not require great learning. It merely requires a simple childlike faith, Jesus says. It is a mere receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. And that is the point that Paul is making here, at least the broader point, beginning in verse 6. Don't think of the way, don't make the way of faith that we are preaching so difficult. It isn't. There's no need for heroics. You needn't go into heaven nor down into the depths. It's near unto you, he says. It's in your heart, it's in your mouth. The way of salvation that we preach is really the simplest. It's the easiest of things. If a man but believes in his heart that Jesus is Lord and confesses with his mouth that God raised him from the dead, he has salvation. He has what he seeks. He's saved. He's justified. But the next, uh, the next thing I want uh, to do is to make three, there, three further claims about faith. The first is it's warrant. Our warrant for believing the gospel. Our warrant for believing the gospel is not found in ourselves. It is found only in God and what he has done in offering his son to us. As Thomas Boston says in his notes from the mayor of modern divinity, this is the good old way of discovering to sinners their warrant to believe in Christ, the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ for all. Do, they, do sinners want to know what their warrant is for believing? It is not found in themselves. It is found in God's Son crucified on the cross. God there proclaims terms of peace, as the Puritans would say. He publishes it far and wide, telling all men, whoever calls upon him, whoever cries out upon a crucified Savior, Son of David, have mercy upon me, will find it. Without exception, here is good news for all. 
Our warrant for believing is not found in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ crucified. The point I'm making is that what makes this whole transaction between me and God possible, the transaction that we call salvation, is not that I desire to be saved. It's not my willingness to be saved. No, it's God's willingness to save. This is what Edward Fisher says. I beseech you consider that God the Father, as he is in his son Jesus Christ, moved with nothing but with his free love to mankind lost, hath made a deed and gift and grant unto them all that whosoever shall believe in this his son shall not perish but have everlasting life. Our warrant for believing is found in the gospel itself. But then I would ask this question next, and that is, how is it that faith comes? And the essential point here is that faith is not man's doing. It occurs admittedly on the side of man. It's the action of man. Yet man does not produce it of himself. The only reason that anyone has faith is not because he decided to have faith. It's because of the Holy Spirit in man. In other words, what I'm saying is that faith, saving faith, is not a human work. It is the opposite of works. It is a saving grace that God, the Holy Spirit, produces in the soul, whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. It is produced in the soul when by the Spirit we are born again, which is why any discussion of faith must include a discussion of the new birth. Because unless we see faith as the work of God in the soul, as a gift that he gives to man, we will be apt to make faith, even our own faith, man's work rather than God's grace. But the next question I would ask is how faith saves us. We speak of justification by faith alone. Well, how is it that faith saves us? How is it that faith makes us righteous in God's sight? Well, like this. It saves us solely by receiving the gift of salvation or the gift of righteousness. J. Gresham Machen, in what is faith, says faith consists not in doing something, but in receiving something. You see, if you're doing something, you're working, you're achieving righteousness on your own. No, but God says here is salvation as a gift. And faith isn't doing anything to become righteous. It's receiving righteousness from another. Thus, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 16, only faith is consistent with grace because grace means salvation is a gift. And I can't earn a gift, I can only receive a gift. The righteousness that God reveals and offers to sinners in the gospel is a gift to be received. And that's exactly what faith does faith receives the gift of salvation. It receives it. It rests upon it. Again, Machen, faith itself is not doing but receiving. It accepts. It rests. It receives salvation from Christ alone. And so it has been said. And let us try to be clear about this. That faith is not the grounds of our salvation. It's not the grounds of our justification. But it is the instrument of both. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive the gift. It's not what saves us in that sense. Never think that. 
The one who saves us is Jesus Christ. He alone occupies the role, the office of savior, not faith. That's also, by the way, why the strength of one's faith is not what matters in salvation. Because it is Christ himself who is the savior and by faith in him we are saved. Now, that is as true of a weak faith as it is of a strong. What matters is only whether he can save those who believe in him, weak or strong. And because he can and does, a weak faith is just as able to save us as a strong. Because faith takes us out of ourselves and into him. It considers not its own energy to believe, but his power to save. That's what faith is. I say it again. It takes me out of myself and into him. That's what faith is. It considers not its own energy, but his. It's receiving, it's resting upon Christ alone for salvation. Well, that brings me to certain false views. And the chief false view, uh, which I would wish uh, to interact with, is that of Roman Catholicism. There uh, is an emerging and an alarming tendency that I am finding in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and Protestantism in general uh, to not take Roman Catholicism seriously, uh, to treat Roman Catholics uh, and the Roman Catholic Church as though uh, they are fellow Christians and brothers in Christ and so on, rather than to treat Roman Catholicism with the utmost seriousness Do you know that our confession places Roman Catholics alongside infidels when it speaks of being unequally yoked with unbelievers and papists, it says? Well, here is how the reasoning goes. Since Roman Catholics confess the same Lord, you think about the passage we have before us. They confess the same Lord. They confess the same resurrection. They confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. They believe that God raised him from the dead. I do not dispute it. Therefore, they are saved along with me. And they should be acknowledged as such. They should be acknowledged as fellow Christians, as fellow believers, as brothers in Christ. For my part, if that is true, let me just say this then I wonder why we trouble calling ourselves Protestants. For to call ourselves Protestants is to declare to the Roman Catholic Church in particular that we stand in protest to your false gospel and your false teaching. Let me tell you what the Roman Catholic teaching is about faith. Their teaching is this. If a man merely assents to the teaching of the church, that is an act of the mind only, whether he understands it or not, so actually you can take the mind out of it too, what they call an implicit faith, if a man merely says, I agree to that, I don't understand it, I haven't even taken it to heart, well, he's saved, at least as much as a man can be saved under the Roman Catholic scheme, because after all, no one can really ever be sure in this life. He's got to give himself all along, Uh, the whole of his life to the the rites and the ceremonies of the church. He can never be sure of his salvation. Indeed, if he claims that he is, then the anathema pronounced at Trent rests upon him. He's damned if he says that he can be sure in this life of his salvation. No, he must give himself fully uh, to the bondage and the slavery of her rites and ceremonies. And then perhaps, perhaps at the end he will be saved, though even then a little bit of time in purgatory uh, might be necessary until at last he is granted a place in heaven. Do, do you realize that everything that the apostle is saying here 
is denied everything. I am not making a caricature. I am being as honest as I can be. The Roman Catholic Church denies salvation by faith. They deny the doctrine of faith that I preach and that Paul preached, and they deny salvation in Christ alone. Salvation is found in the church, and it's never found in this life. Perhaps at the end, as I say, though, even then, perhaps not. Their definition of faith, their definition of salvation are so, uh, are, are so opposite of what I and the reformers and the apostles preach that I have no trouble saying here, and no difficulty saying that what they believe, what they preach is a false gospel. It is the opposite of the true gospel. And we share with them nothing in common. We are totally at odds. Strange then, you see, at first it seems perhaps this text uh, scored a point in favor of Protestants and Catholics together. Strange, though, if you really consider it, that this of all texts would be considered as a common ground when this text is about faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and when it describes salvation just as simply as that. Just as soon as a man believes, just as soon as a man rests upon Jesus Christ, he's saved now and forever. There isn't anything left for him to do. And he may be sure in this life of his salvation. Indeed, he ought to be. That man is not a curse. That man is richly blessed. And so I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones when he says that what they teach is the complete antithesis of what we have here. It's the total opposite. Now, you say to me, what about this or that Roman Catholic? Might he be saved? I think this one might be a Christian, and I'm willing to grant that. You see, I'm not pronouncing anathema upon everyone who belongs to that church, although I am calling their gospel a false gospel. You say, well, can this or that Roman Catholic be saved? And I say, he may, in just the same way as you, just as soon as he rests and receives upon Christ alone for salvation. Yes, he is surely saved. He's a Christian. But practically what you have to realize is that what that means is that He's now placed himself at odds with the very church that he belongs to. So, yes, a Roman Catholic may be saved, but only insofar as he is prepared to depart and to deny the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, let us set aside this growing false belief in the church today that I have witnessed that Roman Catholicism is, after all, not that dangerous. It is. But the second error is found, and I will admit that it is not as dangerous, although it is still dangerous, and it is that of fideism. I spoke of it some last time. It's the common view in the American Protestant church. There are entire schools of evangelism based upon fideism or easy believism, you may have heard it called. Say the words, confess with your mouth. And you are saved. You're a Christian. Just say the words. Last time I spoke about a video of Ray Comfort doing something like that. And I don't say that to denigrate Ray Comfort. I I enjoy uh, his videos. I admire what he's doing. But I think, at least in this one case, he made it too easy. The man said the words and he said, you're a Christian now. That's fideism. Remember that even the demons can say Jesus is Lord. Even the demons believe. That he, ra- he was raised from the dead. And yet their faith does not save them. You said the words. You're a Christian now. That's the danger. That's, that's the false teaching. 
Do I need to show you what's wrong with this, given what we saw already this time and last? Dare I say we are sometimes too ready to believe someone is a Christian without examining what he says? Whether his faith has indeed, as Calvin says, settled deep into his heart, whether it's really changed him, whether his life answers to his profession? Don't hear me saying faith needs to be a difficult thing. I'm not saying that, but surely it must be a credible thing. And please understand the difference. And in order for me uh, to help you understand the difference, let me make my next point, and that is, what is a credible profession of faith? I think it is clear that the apostle is talking about that here. He's, he's helping us to see who the real Christian is, who, uh, whose uh, profession can be trusted, who can believe about himself and, and others believe about him as well, that he really is saved. What's a real profession, the kind of faith that saves us, the kind that can be trusted and accepted by others? And Paul's answer, in essence, and again, it's the answer that Calvin gives, is it's the kind that has the heart in it. It's not just the man who says the words. You've said the words, you're safe. That's fideism. No. It's the kind that has the heart in it. Faith is a heart thing. Let's hold on to that, that much, at least, as we try to understand what a credible profession is. And so... If a man says to you, or you could imagine he's saying to the elders, I'm a Christian, but it seems clear to us that his heart isn't in it, then we might well ask, yes, but do you really believe in your heart? Now, this is what J. Gresham Machen has to say about it. Again, uh, pulling from my box of treasures. Uh, he has a very helpful page, I think, on what a credible profession of faith is in the church. He says, what kind of confession must it be? I, for my part, think that it ought to, uh, to be not merely a verbal confession, but a credible profession. One of the very greatest evils of the present day religious life, it seems to me, is the reception into the church of persons who merely repeat a form of words, such as, I accept Christ as my personal savior. You see what he's interacting with here without giving the slightest evidence to show that they know what such words means, uh, what such words mean. As a consequence of this practice, hosts of persons are being received into the church on the basis. One such person within the church does more harm to the cause of Christ, I for my part believe, than ten such persons outside. The truth is that the ecclesiastical currency in our day has been sadly debased. Church membership as well as church office no longer means what it ought to mean. To that end, it should, I think, be made much harder than it is now to enter the church. You see, in his day, he was saying, and he was speaking of what became what we now know as the mainline Presbyterian church. He was saying anyone at all could become a member of the church. It was far too easy. He was saying, I think it needs to be made a little bit harder. The standard needs to be more than I've just said the words. The words need to be examined. It needs to be a credible thing. But I confess, and I, I can see Machen himself sensing, that these things aren't so easy. And that the church herself uh, is ever faced with this difficulty. What is a credible profession of faith? And it is possible that she would become guilty on either side. Either she would raise the bar so high that she made it too hard for genuine believers to enter in or else made the bar so low that nearly anyone could come in. Something that Ian Murray points out in Revival and Revivalism 
is that one of the things that inevitably happens in days of revival, and this happened in the first great awakening and again in the second great awakening, was that the church begins again and anew to look at the question of church membership. Again, uh, looking, that is, at the question of the credible profession of faith. How do we find the balance? Well, the only answer that I can think to give based upon a text like this is that we need both the words and the experience. You see, not the words only, but the experience too, both the mouth and the heart. A man who believes in his heart is able to confess something of what he feels, something of his own experience of salvation in Jesus. And if he cannot, well, then I say his profession is not credible. To quote uh, Joseph Tracy, I think it's Joseph, J. Tracy, I have in my notes, in his account of the first great awakening, to be saved is an experience of which a man is conscious and can give an account. You see, he knows what he believes. He's experienced salvation. It's something he's conscious about. And there, therefore, he's able to give an account. And when a man gives an account of his experience, when he professes to others what he believes, he's professing his faith. And when it is clear that he both knows what it is to be saved and has truly experienced salvation for himself, then his profession to have faith is credible. And when the, uh, when the standard of church membership ceases to be that, well then, uh, I would say the history of the church tells a sad tale, and that is that the state of the church falls into decline. You need the words, you need the experience too. You need the mouth and you need the heart. But again, I confess these things aren't easy. One of the questions we often have is, what about children? How are they to profess faith? What kind of experience of salvation ought we to look for in them? This thing, I, salvation, this thing I said, along with Tracy, that a man has, uh, not, is not only conscious of, but can give an account. What about the children? Well, here's my answer. It's the answer of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That children are saved just in the same way as we. Just exactly in the same way as we. And if you believe otherwise, you might need to go back to these verses and examine how it is that anyone is saved. I say again, a man is saved when out of the heart he is able to confess what Christ has done for him. Well, perhaps you could say he's saved before that, but his profession of salvation, his profession of uh, of faith is then credible. I am able to tell of the things Christ has done for me. May I just say to anyone who is yet to profess faith to to the elders, that's the one thing we look for more than anything else, that you can put it in the personal form. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know what it is to experience the forgiveness of sins. I was lost, but now I'm found. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what professing faith is. There's a word for it in other circles, and I'm comfortable with it here as well. It's your testimony. That's what it is to profess faith. Not just the words, but the experience, the heart. Now, I won't try to define one kind of experience for all, since they all vary. But I will say this is the minimum requirement for all, even even for children. And to that end, let me outline certain 
generic steps in confessing Christ, which are common to all. First is belief in the heart. The apostle says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Belief in the heart comes first. A man embraces the gospel upon hearing it. And then he is saved. You never confess faith until you actually have it. That's what Paul is saying. Next are the words themselves uttered in the church ordinarily. That's what we call professing faith or confessing Christ. As I say, that happens in the church. You do it to the elders. You do it to the whole church. You say, I'm a Christian now. I throw in my lot with other believers. That's what you find in the early church. They, they heard the gospel. They believed it. And they were added to the church. And so often, uh, it's unspoken, but it's assumed that they were added to the church as they confessed Christ to other Christians. First, a man believes with his heart. He confesses with his mouth to the church. And so he's added to the church. There's no use in believing these things, Paul is saying, unless we're prepared to tell others, unless we're willing to raise our hand and say, I'm a Christian now. I belong to Christ. He saved me. That's the whole story of Acts we've been considering in the evening. But there's also something else. I'm talking about the steps in confessing Christ, having believed in the heart. Something else we must not forget and that is there is also the life of faith, the life of faith, the Christian walk, not just the talk. Confessing Christ is something you might say that a Christian is always doing. He's always confessing Christ. He's always, Luther says, wearing the colors of the court. He bears his master's name always. This is something we'll see tonight. Do you realize that the first Christians were called that by others? They said, these are the Christ people. These are the people of Christ. It wasn't they who said that about themselves. It was others who were saying it about them. It was obvious by the way that they lived that they were Christians. And so they were confessing Christ with their lives. And so the one who really confesses Christ is not like those that Edward Fisher describes in the marrow of modern divinity who professing faith in Christ yet are not possessed of Christ. Those that can talk like believers and yet who do not walk like believers. No, that isn't the man who really confesses Christ. If a man is a believer, if he really has faith in his heart, his life will show it. He will confess Christ with his lips and with his hands and with his feet and everything about him. And this is something, if you've lived the Christian life any amount of time or read the New Testament or read the history of the church, that I would say is especially evident in times of fiery trials. It is especially evident then who really belong to Christ, who really confess his name and who, on the other hand, are prepared to deny him. Who is the real Christian? Well, the real Christian is someone who confesses Christ truly and savingly when the trials come. Well, let me close by making three points of application. First, going back to an earlier point, do we imagine faith is something difficult or do we see that faith is something which is 
simple, something which is easy and something which is for anyone. That's the first test. The second is this. Have we got faith? Do we really believe in our hearts, as Paul says, or as Calvin says, has it settled deep within our hearts, something, uh, a light that does not easily pass or fade away? And then thirdly, do our lives answer to our professions? Are we really confessing Christ? Yes, we say we believe in the heart, but have, have we confessed outwardly that Jesus is Lord? If we really believe the gospel and claim that it has brought about a change of heart inwardly, do our lives answer outwardly to what we claim has happened inwardly? Is there a conformity of heart and life? If we say we have this kind of heart faith, what do our words and our lives say about us? By the way, that's something that Ian Murray discusses in Revival and Revivalism. A credible profession of faith was more than the words. They would look at a man's life. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying, and that's exactly what I, I think Paul is saying here. What does a man really confess about himself by what he does and who he is and the kind of life he lives? You see, that's the difference. That's the difference, William Guthrie would say, between the hypocrite and the true believer. The believer having a heart to, to accept Christ and thus a heart to follow Christ really does so in all things. You see, he doesn't just say it. It's obvious he really believes it. Christ is the Savior. He's following him, whereas the hypocrite only pretends to believe with his words. But his life tells a different story. Now, why do I say this? I do not say this to make the honest believer anxious about his soul or to call into question his profession, but only to help you all see how comprehensive the statement is that the apostle makes here. When the apostle Paul says, with the heart a man believes and with the mouth he confesses, he's really talking about the whole of man. He's talking about all that he is and all that he does. Saving faith is something that permeates the heart first, the inward parts of man. It changes him completely. It changes his priorities, his commitments. But then it gives expression in all that he says and all that he does. He believes in the heart, yes, but he also confesses with the mouth. There is the inward and the outward, both are included. Both are absolutely necessary. A, man, a, a Christian is a man who not only believes with his heart that Jesus is Lord, but he confesses Christ all the time with his life. Do you find him singing hymns in the church? Do you find him living as Christ calls him to live, even in the trials and difficulties of life? Do you find that he's a man like Paul, who's not ashamed of the gospel? Well, here is a true Christian, and no one ought to doubt it, least of all himself. You see, ultimately this resolves in clarifying for the Christian his true interest. His true interest is in Jesus Christ himself. And how is it that a man may know about himself? And how is it that we may know about others that they truly have a saving interest in Jesus Christ? And the answer is just as simple as this, whether he has saving faith. Amen. And let us come now to the table.